Today we are continuing our study in the book of Acts, picking up in chapter 11, verse 19. Let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all the dads here in our church and pray just blessing upon them today. We thank you, God, for your word and we ask that you would minister it to our hearts today in a powerful way. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. And in case you missed it on The View, guys, we have for all the dads, all the grandpas, uh, the world-famous Manrito available today, uh, the biggest breakfast Rito you will ever have, and they are delicious. So um, check that out today in the courtyard. But... Um, You know, we have been going through the book of Acts here on Sunday mornings since last September. We're just kind of journeying through, making our way through. And we've seen how God has really used a a small group of people. It started with 120 people in Jerusalem, meeting in an upper room, who were empowered by the Holy Spirit, who end up turning their world upside down. And we've been learning as a church, as we go through the book of Acts, um, why we study the Bible the way that we do, why we worship or place an emphasis on worship, why we gather in community and have an emphasis on that. We'll see in the book of Acts our approach as a church to missions and to leadership. And all of this we see in this study of the book of Acts. That's what we're learning as a church. But the book of Acts has tremendous value for us as individual believers as well. In fact, there was a, a great-grandmother who was and in her church, and on Tuesday nights at her church, they had a little gathering where they were memorizing scripture, and so she would go to that, and she really wanted to memorize, you know, Bible verses, and on this particular night, the Bible verse that they were learning was Acts 2.38, which simply says this, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that was their verse that night, and they were going over it and going over it, and on the way home, she was just reciting it over and over again as she was driving home, Acts 2.38, and she would recite the verse. Well, when she gets to her house, she opens up the front door. It's still dark, but she sees movement in her house, and she realizes that there's a burglar in the, the house, and the first thing she, saw, she thought to, to say was she yelled out, stop, Acts 2.38. <laughs> and the guy just froze. The police were called. And when the officer came and was taking the guy out to the car, he said, you know, I just got to ask you, I mean, why were you just standing there frozen in the house when, when all it was was this, you know, great grandmother there? And he said, well, she yelled out, stop, I've got an axe and two thirty eights." <laughs> Uh. <laughs> See, God's word is, is powerful, right? <laughs> well, we are entering into this new section of the book of Acts, 
we started talking about this last week, where we are seeing this fresh outpouring of God's spirit, and it's going to result in the gospel going to the Gentiles. And we noted last week that this was a pivotal time because it was 10 years from the birth of the early church, 10 years from the first outpouring of God's spirit there on the day of Pentecost. And today we're going to see that, that as God moves, there's a pivotal place that he uses and a pivotal person. The pivotal place is the city of Antioch. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 19 and kind of see how we get to Antioch. He says, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Pause there and give me your attention. What we have here is sort of a recap verse. As Luke is taking us back, he's kind of bringing us up to speed as he notes the death of Stephen. Remember Stephen, one of the first deacons raised up in chapter 6, begins preaching and God's using him mightily in chapter 7, but then the religious leaders come against him and they kill him. And then in chapter 8, we saw this radical great persecution that comes upon the church and the church in Jerusalem was scattered and they went out to all these different places preaching the gospel and we saw God move in Samaria and then there was a little bit of a break in the story as we were introduced to Saul of Tarsus and we saw his conversion in chapter 9 and then in chapter 10 we saw how God was moving and working in Peter's life to really have Peter be the first one of the apostles to bring the gospel to Cornelius there in chapter chapter 10, and we looked at the second part of that last week, all the way into chapter 11, verse 18, where we saw the Holy Spirit poured out for the first time on the Gentiles. And so Luke is reminding us of all of that, reminding us of of what happened and, and how these people now went out. During that time when they were scattered, he says some of them, they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. But notice it says that they went out preaching, but to the Jews only. So they were still stuck in that mindset that, that, this, that Jesus came and he's the, the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews, but that's about to change. God is going to begin a move, a work that, that reaches all over the Gentile world all over the non-Jewish world, that the gospel is going to spread throughout the Middle East, and it originates in this place called Antioch. Let's pick it up in verse 20. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here we see this pivotal place that God is descending upon and moving and working and, and people are getting saved. And Antioch was the capital of Syria at that time. And we see that this is really, we see the stretching scope of the gospel going forth because Antioch is 300 miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
Now, this Antioch is not to be confused with one we'll read about later in chapter 13, verse 14, called Antioch of Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. In fact, there were at least 16 cities in the Middle East that were all named Antioch. And the reason was, is the guy who founded those cities named each one of them after his dad. He loved his dad. And so every time he would kind of found or start a new city, he would name it Antioch. So there were several, uh, at least 16 cities in the region called Antioch. But this particular Antioch had a population of a half a million people, making it the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire, only behind Rome and Alexandria. And a city of half a million people in that day and age was massive. It was also a strategic city because Antioch was a destination city. It was a place that people visited from all over the world. It was a cosmopolitan type city. Think of, you know, London, New York. York, Paris. Antioch was the center of commerce and culture and luxury. And the architecture in Antioch was so magnificent that they nicknamed the city Antioch, the golden queen of the East. In fact, imagine this, the main street in Antioch that went down the center of the street was four miles long and it was paved with marble. That's how grand it was. That's how luxurious it was. Antioch attracted all kinds of people, including wealthy retired Roman officials, and they would go there to just spend their days in the Roman bathhouses and at the racetracks and at and gambling and just living, you know, that retired luxury lifestyle. But Antioch was also a very wicked city. It was the home to three large pagan temples, one to the goddess Artemis, another to the goddess Daphne, and then there was what was called the Pantheon. And the Pantheon was essentially a temple that was in honor of any and all of the pagan deities. And then they also had in Antioch this basilica that that was focused entirely on the worship of Caesar because emperor worship was a big deal in the Roman Empire. So in Satan's war against the worship of the true and living God, you could say that Antioch was one of his crowning conquests. Antioch was also a city where they worshiped sex. And through the worship of the goddess Daphne, hundreds of temple priestesses, really prostitutes, would go out every single night recruiting worshipers. And they would do this by seeking to get men to engage in sexual immorality, sexual relations with them. So listen, ladies, if a guy, your husband said, hey, I'm going to church tonight, you knew exactly what that meant. You knew exactly what he was going to be doing. So Antioch was home to hundreds of thousands of men and women who were living for idols that couldn't give them life and loving idols that didn't love them back and trusting in idols who always fail and always lie. And in a similar way, there are hundreds of thousands of people here in North County, San Diego, who are living for things that don't give them life, who are loving things that don't love them back, and who are trusting in things that always fail. 
and always lie. And that's one of the reasons why we see so much brokenness and wickedness and heartbreak in the culture around us. But I've got good news for you. Everybody say good news. Good news for you that the Bible says this in Romans chapter 5 verse 20 that where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And that's what we see here in this wicked city of Antioch. God had a plan for this city. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, this wicked city of Antioch will replace Jerusalem as the focal point from where the work of God is going to originate and is sent out. And that should encourage us. That should encourage all of us that there is no person And there is no place that is beyond the reach and the work of Almighty God. Can I get an amen to that? Another thing that should encourage us is a phrase found there in verse 20 that's easy to pass over. Notice that phrase. The phrase is some of them. Everybody say some of them. So what it's telling us here is this work that was started in Antioch and ended up spreading all over the world was started by some men, just some no-name guys. If someone were to ask, hey, who started the work? Who started the church in Antioch? They would be like, I don't know. I don't remember their names. I mean, they were just some guys from, from Cyprus. But I do remember what they told us. They told us about Jesus. And I love this in our day and age where everything seems to be about name recognition and creating your brand. The Lord is reminding us that none of that matters because what's important is who Jesus is and what he's done. Have you ever experienced this where someone else gets credit for something that you did? You ever experienced that? How'd you react to that? You know, I've had that happen many times. And I got to tell you, in my flesh, I did not handle that very well. (laughs) Now, I didn't show it outwardly. But, but I got to tell you, I mean, there, there's been so many times. There, there even was a, a book that was written that was chronicling, you know, kind of a work of God that I had a major role in, and I wasn't even mentioned in the pages. All the credit was given to somebody else. And, and I got to tell you, in my flesh, I was like, but hey, that was me. I was a part of that. And God spoke to my heart, and he said, Rob, why is that so important to you? Talk about being pierced. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't know why that's so important to me, Lord, you know? But we do that, right? That's why I love passages like this. Some men, some of them, just some guys, some dudes. Because listen, our goal is to make Jesus famous. Not us. It's to exalt his name. It's all about what the sign says out out in in the lobby and on the sign outside. It's all about simply Jesus. And God just calls us to be faithful to what he's called us to. So God uses some men, some random no-name guys to penetrate one of the most wicked but influential places in the whole Roman Empire with the gospel. 
And we'll see in the remainder of our study in the book of Acts that this fresh move of God, it originates and it flows from this city. But the next thing I want us to consider today is not just that God moves through a pivotal place, but he also moves through a pivotal person. And in this, we're going to have some encouragement, I think, for all of us who are, all of us here, but but particularly for those of us who are dads and grandpas. So let's read beginning in verse 22. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Pause there and give me your attention. So we see here that the apostles in Jerusalem hear about what God is doing in Antioch. And they say, hey, we need to send somebody to Antioch to help these new believers there get grounded in their faith. But remember, I said, Antioch is 300 miles away from Jerusalem. Now today, 300 miles isn't that big of a deal, right? Traveling at 70 miles an hour in our cars, we can get there in, you know, four and a half hours. You can take a Southwest flight, get there in 40 minutes. But in this day, 300 miles, you're walking. That was a long way. That was quite a journey, so why was it so important for the, the apostles to send somebody 300 miles away to minister to these new believers? Listen, this is why. Don't miss this. Because the apostles understood that sheep need a shepherd. That's why. And it was no mistake that God compares people to sheep. You know, he does that. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. He he compares us to sheep. And sheep are some of the dumbest animals that God has made. (laughs) Seriously. You know, one one little sheep can, can run off a cliff thinking, oh, that looks like fun. And the whole rest of the herd, wee, wow, they'll follow him to their deaths. Sheep will graze on one piece of pasture Until it's all gone. They'll just eat and eat and eat. And then when it's gone, they'll they'll just stand there like, what do we do now? You know? Like they're going to starve to death without a shepherd who's going to lead them to fresh, new, green pastures. Sheep need a shepherd to guide them. And what's true of sheep in the natural world is also true of sheep in the spiritual world. Sheep need a shepherd. And without a shepherd, sheep get lost and they become unhealthy. And so the apostles picked this guy, Barnabas, to send him 300 miles to go and care for these new sheep. Who was Barnabas? 
We've met him already. We first met him in Acts chapter 4. It'll be on the screen. It says this about him. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now don't miss this. His real name was Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. They were like, man, Barnabas is such an encouraging guy, or or Joseph is such an encouraging guy. Let's call him Barnabas, because he just goes around encouraging everybody in the church. And I think Barnabas is a great picture for all of us who are dads and grandpas to aim at. So let's consider what the Lord tells us about Barnabas here in the book of Acts. And the first thing that we see here in Acts chapter 4 is that he was a generous man. Remember the church at that particular time was living communally. Because you had all these people from all over the Middle East who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They heard Peter preach about Jesus. They got saved. 3,000 were added to the church that very first, after that very first message. And these guys don't want to go home. They're like, hey, we, we, found, we believe Jesus is now the Messiah. This is amazing what God has done. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And they're like, we don't want to leave. So the church, those in Jerusalem started opening up their houses. Others started renting houses. And the church Churches living communally out of necessity. They're getting together all of this food so that they can have these massive, you know, dinners together. And this guy, Barnabas, sees the issue, sees the problem, says, man, I want to help. I have a piece of land. I'll sell it. And he gives all of the proceeds to the church, to the apostles. He was a generous man. He was willing to use his assets to bless others and the work of the ministry. And you know, generous people are beautiful pictures, I think, of the Lord. Because our Lord is so generous, isn't he? He's such a good, good father. And I think we are never more like the Lord than when we are using what we have in order to bless others. I mean, think about what God did for us. God gave, not from his leftovers, he gave us his very best in sending his son, Jesus. And Jesus went the extra mile, didn't he, in leaving heaven and coming this earth to come and purchase our redemption. And here we see that Barnabas is willing to go the extra mile, 300 miles to be exact, to come alongside these new believers. And I ask you this question, church. How far are you willing to go in order to be a blessing and an encouragement to others? How much are you willing to give? How generous are you willing to be to bless others? You see, Jesus said this, and I don't think we actually believe this verse the way that we so often live. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Barnabas believe that. 
Barnabas lived that way. Barnabas was a generous guy. The second thing I want you to note about Barnabas that we see here in our text is that he saw Jesus. He chose to see Jesus in others. Notice verse 23. It says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He comes to Antioch. What did he see? He saw men and women who used to be worshiping idols, who now were worshiping the true and living God. And he attributed to the grace of God. The grace of God means giving, getting what we don't deserve. And he saw these people, they were saved now. He saw them worshiping the true and living God. And he was so glad in seeing that. Here's something that happens a lot of times to those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time. Listen to me. We see somebody come and give their life to Jesus. Somebody responds to an altar call. Somebody gives their life to the Lord. But because those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time have seen a lot of people do that who only a month or two later end up you know, going back to their old life, we, we, it breeds within us a skepticism that when we see somebody respond to the gospel, we think this, how long is it gonna last with this one? Can I encourage you not to do that? Can I encourage you to resist the temptation to think that way and instead rejoice with these new believers? Heaven says when one person repents and turns to the Lord, all of heaven rejoices. I love being around new believers. They're so excited about the Lord. They're so raw. You know, sometimes they'll cuss when they're praying and, you know, I mean, seriously, have you ever had that happen? Like somebody's like, they're praying and they say a cuss word and you're like, what? You know, but it's just that still they, had, they haven't been transformed yet. You know, it's still a part of, of who they are. It's, it, it's precious. Can I encourage you to learn to see Jesus in others? Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, I choose to, to look at, I don't look at anybody after the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is when I look at my brothers and sisters, I want to see them for who they are in Jesus. And when I look at somebody that doesn't know Jesus, I'm looking at them from the perspective of there's somebody that needs to know Jesus. So he says, I don't focus on the flesh because you know what? When we focus on the flesh, what do we see? Flaws. And we are, we're all flawed, every single one of us, right? We all have flaws. We're all a work in progress. Barnabas is rejoicing in what God is doing in these new believers. But I want you to also catch this. He wasn't just content that they were saved. And this is the next mark of an encourager is he wanted to help them go further in their faith. Again, look at verse 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. Here's the, here's the key. And encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. I like the way the ESV version puts this, the last part of this verse. It says, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The word steadfast there is the word cardia from which we get our word cardio, which speaks of the heart. And what he's telling us here is it's all about purposing 
the heart. The heart is the target of this exhortation. To be steadfast in the heart. And this is a message that needs to be preached today. This, we need to speak this and we need to model this. We need to be faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. And what's God's purpose for us? Is to honor him with our lives. To bring glory to him with our lives. And as men, listen, we need to model this for our kids and our grandkids. Those of you who are older men in our fellowship need to model this for the younger men. Those of you who have walked with God for a while, you need to model this steadfastness of heart that says, I know that the reason I exist is to honor God with my life. That's why I'm here. And we need to model that for the younger people that are around us. So encouragers want to see you go further in the faith. The encourager comes to you and challenges you to stand up for the Lord in a culture that doesn't want you to do that. Encouragers are those who will lovingly come to you and challenge you about a a sin issue in your life or an attitude in your life. Encouragers are those who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. You know, one of the things that I learned from my dad was how to give advice. My dad was a master at this. When I would ask my dad for advice, most of the time, he wouldn't straight out give me any advice. He would ask me, he would say, well, what are your options? So I'd run down the options. And then he would respond by showing me what each option might lead to or what would be the possible blessings but also the possible challenges of each of those options. And we would talk about the options and then he would say this, so now you know how to pray. And basically what he was teaching me, and I'll be honest with you, when he first would do this, I would, I would be like, come on, dad, just tell me what to do. But he wouldn't do that. What he was doing was he was teaching me how to process. And he was teaching me how to pray through. I am so indebted to him for this. He was really teaching me what what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says when it says that, that we're to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge the Lord. And he'll direct us. He was teaching me how to do that. But I remember this one particular time. It was pivotal in my life. I was about 19 years old on a scholarship at Vanguard University playing baseball. And it was during that time, a lot of you know the story, it was then that God in a very demonstrative way that I don't have time to get into today, really, really made it clear that he was wanting me to give up playing ball and start getting into the word more because he was calling me into the ministry. The thing was, is I didn't know. I knew that was a word. I knew that was from the Lord. I knew that that's what he was doing. But, but I didn't know the when, the timing, because I was like on a baseball scholarship. And it's, we're in the winter ball, and we haven't even started the regular season. So I'm like thinking to myself, do, do I quit at the end of the year? Do I quit at the end of four years? And so I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, I don't know what to do. I, I, you know, I know this is from the Lord. I know this is what he, how he's leading me. And he said this to me. He says, all I can tell you is this. You're not going to be happy until you're doing what God wants you to do. And it's like, boom, that's it. I quit the next day. 
It's like, okay. God's calling me to this. I need to, to get, you know, I need to get on with it. Well, my dad passed away in February of 2020. And when he was in the hospital for the last time, and I went there to, you know, we were all around him, but there was one particular point when he was there in the hospital that I just had a private little time with him. No one else was in the room. And, and he was telling me just how proud he was of me. He was telling me my dad was a part of our church here for like 24 years. And, 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 and he was telling me just how much he learned from me as a pastor, which was really, really weird to hear him say. He was just telling me how blessed, you know, he was with what God had done with my life. And I said, well, dad, you remember, remember, you know, back in the, you know, where, where it all started. When I said, came to you and I said, dad, you know, what am I supposed to do? Should I quit or should I keep playing? And, and you said to me, you're not going to be happy until, you know, you're doing what God wants you to do. And, and then he said this to me. He said, you know what? He said, I wanted to tell you to keep playing. <laughs> He said, because I, I really thought that you could have made it. You know, he, he thought I could have made the pro. He, he was delusional at that. I, I wasn't that good. But, but, he, but he was like, and I thought to myself, he's been carrying this for 38 years. He never, ever told me that until he's on his deathbed. But I thought, how precious, how amazing that he chose to encourage me in God's calling for my life and not what was his dream for my life. Encouragers will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And I'll tell you this, some men never ever grow up because they don't have somebody in their life telling them what they need to hear, or at least they're not listening to maybe the person who is telling them that. So We see in Barnabas that he was a generous man who saw Jesus and others, who wanted to help others go further in their faith and grow in the Lord. The next thing we see about him in verse 24 is that he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. He was a good man. That's a great description, isn't it? That guy's a good man. What made him a good man? He was full of the Holy Spirit. That means that he was a man who was led by the Spirit. He was a man who lived his life empowered by the Spirit. He was a man who walked after the Spirit. And so his life manifested the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle would write this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And because the word fruit there is singular, there are many Bible teachers who believe that the primary fruit of the spirit is love you know that goes along with what jesus said that love is the most important thing and all of these other things in the list are just characteristics of love like for instance joy is love's rejoicing peace is love's stability and you think about peace is the opposite of chaos and confusion patience is love's suffering long kindness is love's grace it's being kind towards those who don't deserve your kindness faithfulness is love's dependability gentleness is love's meekness and a lot of people when they hear the word meek they think of weak but but that's not true because Jesus was the 
the meekest person, and he wasn't weak at all, right? Meekness is really power under control. So gentleness is love's meekness. Self-control is love's discipline. And goodness is love's generosity. It's pouring itself out to others in order to bless them and profit them. So being full of the Holy Spirit means that it's a person who is full of love. And the fruit of love is widely evident in his or her life. So Barnabas was a good man because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And the love of God was just pouring out of him, but but also because he was full of faith. And encouragers are those who are able to see. This is what full full of faith is. It's being able to see the Lord in every situation. Encouragers are those who are able to see something by faith that others aren't seeing. They're able to see the Lord and what he's doing in the circumstance. They're able to see the hand of God. In a time of trial and adversity, when when people are just stumbling and falling apart because all they can see is the immensity of the problem and they're responding in their emotions to the immensity of the problem, the encourager, the person who is full of faith, sees the immensity of our God. When others see a giant, a.k.a. Goliath, The person who is full of faith sees a ginormous God. And he says, you come to me, David did, with a sword and a spear. But I come to you in the name of the God of Israel. And today he's going to deliver you into my hands. When others see only a storm, the person who is full of faith sees Jesus, the stiller of the storm. You see, those who are full of faith always believe that God can do great things. They see God as the one who desires to show himself strong on our behalf. And so they live with a certain degree of expectation of, Lord, what are you going to do next? You know, we have the Harvest Crusade coming up in a couple of weeks, July 1st and 2nd at the Honda Center. Do you know how the Harvest Crusade started? It was back when Greg Laurie was doing the Monday night Bible study at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And there was, you know, God was moving and working in a powerful way. Place was always packed and sanctuary sat 2,000 people. They had overflow in the fellowship hall as well as in the gymnasium. And every single Monday night, there, there were people coming to Christ, hundreds of people coming to, you know, give their life to the Lord. The place was just packed with young people. God was moving. And so Pastor Chuck Smith calls Greg Laurie into his office one day and says, you know, Greg, I think that we should do, I love what God's doing here, you know, on Monday nights and how he's using you and it's just so powerful. I think we should take what God's doing here and and take a few days and do it at the Pacific Amphitheater in Costa Mesa. The Pacific Amphitheater seats like 15,000 people. And this was Greg's response. He said, Pastor Chuck, that's a big place. And Pastor Chuck said, and we have a big God you know? And that's how it all started. That's how it was birthed, the the Harvest Crusades. And it's so awesome to see, you know, the Lord move and work in that type of way. So those who are full of faith, they see that the possibilities are endless. That was Barnabas. 
And notice the end of verse 24, and it says, and a great many were added to the faith. And I want you to catch this. You might want to write this in your Bible. You can write in your Bibles. It's okay. Um, But you might want to write this in your Bible. It wasn't because of Barnabas. It wasn't because, you know, God was using Barnabas in such a great way through his preaching. All these other people were getting saved. The implication here is as he was encouraging the believers, they were being encouraged to go out and live their faith. And as they went out and lived their faith, they had a contagious effect on those around them. It's a beautiful thing. One more thing we learn about encouragers from Barnabas. Encouragers see potential when others only see problems. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So this is amazing. We last saw Saul of Tarsus back in Acts chapter 9. Remember, he was the quote-unquote terrorist that was going and, and bringing havoc against the church and persecuting the church. He gets has an encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the road to Damascus. He gets saved. And immediately, you know, he starts telling people about Jesus there in Damascus, but the Jewish people get mad at him. They, they want to kill him, so he escapes. He goes to Jerusalem where he starts talking to them about what God had done in his life and preaching Jesus. And the Hellenists are arguing with him and, and, and they try to kill him. So he ends up going out to the desert of Arabia. And he's out in isolation Spends uh, some time out there just learning, kind of being discipled by Jesus. But then he ends up back in Tarsus, his hometown. And he's been living in Tarsus now for years in obscurity. And no one knows what to do with this guy, this killer who has now been saved. But Barnabas was there in Jerusalem when Saul showed up. And he remembered him. And now Barnabas is in Antioch and this great work God is doing and he needs help and he thinks, who should I get? I remember that Saul guy. He'd be perfect for this. And Tarsus wasn't that far from Antioch so he goes and he finds Saul and this is what I want you to see. Encouragers are willing to stick out their necks for those they see potential in. Encouragers champion the underdog. Encouragers are those who will jump on the bandwagon when everyone else is jumping off. And Barnabas probably was thinking, you know, we have this mix of Jewish people here and Greek people here and Roman people here. Who would be the best guy to minister to them? Saul. It's perfect. He's Jewish. He comes from a Greek background. He's a Hellenistic Jew, so he speaks Greek. He's also a Roman citizen. He would be the perfect guy to help out in this ministry. Encouragers see potential when everyone else only sees problems. You know, others might give up on us, but God never does. And I want to encourage you in that today. So notice what it says. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Barnabas and Saul are teaching the word. Lives are being impacted and changed. 
And something remarkable is happening. As the people in Antioch, remember this wicked pagan city full of hundreds of thousands of idolaters and many of them now are getting saved. They're coming to faith in Christ and people are seeing a difference. And so they start calling them Christians. It's like saying, they're Jesusites. They're Jesus people. They remind us of Jesus. What an incredible compliment. Right? What an incredible compliment. That's the best thing that that anybody can say about you. You remind me of Jesus. Unfortunately, Warren Wiersbe says that today in our Christian culture, the name Christian has lost its meaning. Because we have so many, so many Americans who identify as Christians, but don't live like Jesus. Oh yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. And I think it was Greg Laurie, the first one I ever said that, you know, um, he used to have this saying, something about, you know, just because you're in the garage doesn't make you a car, or I don't know, something like that, but... But the, the point is, just because you're an American, that doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It's living for Jesus. It's living after Jesus. It's allowing Jesus to, to transform our lives, being sold out to him. And I just wonder, and I want to leave you with this today. I just wonder if a group of Christians like us began to live in such a way that was more like Jesus. I wonder if we could bring that name back. I wonder if we could bring it back to a point where it was like, those guys are really Christians because they're like Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? As we close, I want to encourage all of us here, but especially the men Let's, be, let's seek to be, through the grace of God, people who are generous because God has been so generous to us. Let's be people who look to see Jesus in others. Let's look to be, through the grace of God, those who want to see those who are newer in the faith go forward in their faith in Jesus. And let's be people whose lives are marked by being full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And let's be people who see potential in others where some maybe are only seeing a problem. Amen? Amen. I'd like all of the dads to stand. I want to pray over you guys. Pray for us. All the dads in the, in the room. Father, I thank you for each and every one of these men. Lord, I thank you for their faith in you. Lord, I thank you, God, for their commitment and their desire to lead their families. I thank you, Lord, for those men here who are older, who their families are grown that are still seeking to be men 
who are examples to the younger men in our church. And God, we pray today. I pray for these brothers. I pray for myself. That we would be men of steadfast purpose. That we would be men who realize and understand and know why we are here. That we wouldn't become lazy or slothful in our walk with you, but that we would be men that are going for it. That we would live our lives in such a way to bring you glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be generous. That we would see people the way that you do. That we would be those encouragers. Lord, I pray that you would fill us afresh today with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see the potential in our kids, the potential in others, how to point them to you, how to teach them like like my dad did for me, how to seek you. Lord, I thank you for these brothers. I pray blessing upon them today in Jesus' name. Amen.